from Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the COVID-19 crisis. But there's another crisis looming in the background, and that's behavioral health. We've talked about the impact of behavioral health among adults before, but the problem is actually a lot worse among children. These are kids who've grown up during other major crises in our nation and in our world. And the added trauma of a global pandemic sort of makes it feel like generation screwed. To help us understand how big of a problem the pediatric behavioral health crisis is and what to actually do about it, I've brought a team from Seattle Children's to Radio Advisory. We've got Executive Director Ginger Hines, Medical Director and CMO Cheryl Morelli, and Chair of Pediatric Psychology and Behavioral Medicine Larry Wisso. Welcome to all three of you. I will say we will we have never had three guests at the same time on Radio Advisory, so I am very happy that Seattle Children's gets to be the first. Quick question for the three of you before we get into the details. Have any of you ever been on a podcast before? What about you, Cheryl? Yeah, this is actually number two for me. Wow. Okay, Ginger? Also number two. Cheryl and I did one a couple weeks ago together. Larry? We used to do a collaborative program with a high school-run radio station in coastal Maryland. So lots. Wow. Okay, so podcast veterans... I want to start by kind of reflecting on the past. I know that Seattle Children's has been focused on pediatric behavioral health for some time now. Give me a sense of what the state of pediatric behavioral health was before the pandemic. When did you realize this was a problem that you needed to invest in? Well, I can take a a crack at that. One way of looking at it is that we knew ahead of time that it would be a problem. The Kids who are junior high and high school students now are the children of the Great Recession from 2008. They Mm -hmm. lived through the opioid crisis. It was pretty clear from the get-go that this was going to be a really big second hit and we'd have to be ready to uh, see a a big surge in demand. Yeah, let's talk about what happened when COVID-19 hit. We've talked about the kind of effects of, you know, stress, isolation, just the trauma of living through a global crisis when it comes to adults. We've talked about that on the podcast before. But how has it specifically affected kids? Cheryl, let's go to you. Yeah, sure. You know, Well, so definitely we've seen increased rates in depression, anxiety. One that surprised me was um, a pretty big increase in eating disorders and then a hmm. very significant increase in suicidal ideation. Oh um, we're are seeing this across all healthcare sectors. So in primary care, our emergency departments, our inpatient units, our ICUs. So you're primed that this problem is going to be big. It's something that we were tracking before the pandemic. Certainly the numbers have not, you know, certainly the numbers have not gotten better. But I guess my question for Ginger is, when did you decide that you wanted to make a big investment here? Were there specific metrics? Was there a specific moment that you knew we need to put our money where our mouth is? 
Well, one advantage of working in a clinically integrated network and having arrangements with health plans is that we get a lot of claims data. So even before COVID, we were seeing trends in growth for children and behavioral health crises and um, services growing. And, you know, there's obvious clinical indications and reasons to invest that Larry and Cheryl can speak to. But from a financial perspective, over several years of claims data from these contracts, we found that by and large children with behavioral health comorbidities were often upwards of three times more costly Hmm. in terms of their utilization of other services. And that's not dissimilar to what is found in the adult population as well. Yeah. I I do appreciate you bringing up cost, but I'm always super wary of talking about cost in the healthcare space because it can mean different things for different organizations who are in different business models, right? If you have risk-based arrangements, it makes sense for you to try to reduce total cost. But not every not every hospital, not every health system has arrangements that incentivize that sort of work. Do you have advice when it comes to the financial picture for other leaders who might be thinking, I know I need to invest in behavioral health, but honestly, it's going to be a loss leader? You know, from a population health perspective, and Larry and Cheryl can chime in on this too, I think our goal is to put ourselves out of business. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, I, Well, right? We, we don't want kids in the hospital. We don't want them seeking treatment. And it's working. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're early in on this. But our goal is to break even. Yeah. Okay. Your goal is to break even. I mean, I think there are other incentives when you look at it also from the uh, perspective of being in a major referral hospital. Hmm. I think you've probably seen the the national data that shows that the proportion of uh, children coming to emergency rooms with mental health problems has gone way up. I mean, some of that's because the overall volume has gone down somewhat, but one of the you know huge drivers for us, uh, you know, frankly, are the complaints from our colleagues in the emergency room, our complaints from our colleagues on the hospitalist services that um, they they don't want our mental health patients crowding out their other business. So it sounds like at Seattle Children's, you've identified the problem, right? Things are not good, and you've established a business case. And I appreciate you you being a little bit more holistic in what that business case is. Let's talk about the actual investments that you made. I kind of want to ask each of you to just say quickly, in your mind, what's the single most impactful thing that Seattle Children's has done when it comes to the pediatric behavioral health crisis? Cheryl, let's start with you. Gosh, Brad, that's kind of hard. Oh, to get to one thing is kind of difficult. But I mean, I really think our guild association having the foresight to designate money to pay for behavioral health professionals to get into uh, pediatric primary care practices has been instrumental in us um, starting to be able to make a dent um, in treating behavioral mental health more effectively. Ginger, what about you? Yeah, similar, helping to support the cost for private practice pediatricians to embed help in their practices and to get way upstream of the problem. Larry, what would you say? I think that the biggest thing that that the COVID crisis has done to help us respond has actually been to make our own department work as a system. Hmm. Previously, it 
it really hasn't. You know, we have an inpatient unit, we have outpatient services, and they almost negotiate with each other as if they're, you know, separate entities. And COVID has, has meant that we have had to come together. We've had to really think of ourselves as a system and not yeah. as just sort of a collection of individual activities. And we've had to, you know, think about how to round it out. Mm-hmm. I think the final thing is that the thing that will ultimately be the biggest payoff, I think, is is realizing that we've got to be truly family-centered, which is a yeah. huge challenge for a child-defined organization. Part of me keeps thinking that, gosh, doctors have so much on them right now, especially during this pandemic. And primary care is not excluded from that. Uh, uh, I know from experience in trying to get primary care physicians to shift their workflow can sometimes be like, like pulling teeth. Ginger, how do you actually make it easy for those PCPs to tap into the behavioral health support that you're providing them or that you're, you're pushing them towards? Yeah, one of the things we recognize, there's a lot of whirlwind at a primary care practice, right? Yeah. They're busy all day. There's not a lot of time. And so we come alongside with practical support for care transformation coaching. So people who've worked in primary care and they understand and they can come alongside and support with, well, how do you actually organize and get this work done? And also project manage that and train and help coach the staff along the way and kind of kind of be the wind under their wings mm. to come alongside with some real practical side-by-side support for them to make these changes. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to change what you're doing when you've got, you know, your clinic's busy all day from mm-hmm. the time you open to even after you close. So we recognize that's a key piece. But there's tremendous motivation for for doing it. I mean, first of all, because such a large proportion of visits have a psychosocial or a mental health component. And secondly, because it, it really only takes, you know, one unanswerable doorknob question of, oh, yeah, on the way out, by the way, you know, he cuts himself to wreck your day. So the bottom line is that, there's there's pretty good evidence that being more psychosocially oriented in the course of your primary care visit and being able to address these kinds of things efficiently in the practice actually makes you more productive, not less. I don't want to say that there's a silver lining to, you know, the greatest kind of crisis moment of our, of our time or certainly of our professional careers, but one of the one of my bright spots has been how many institutions have named this kind of systemness as something that really uh, uh, came to the surface and really grew amid the pandemic. And now the next question is or the next step is how do we make that last? How do we keep those deeper connections that maybe were a little bit fragmented prior to the pandemic? I think that, you know, one of the big, you know, transformations that uh, that I think has happened here that, that's also driven it is our clinics have had to sort of change their, if you will, almost ethical approach from saying, well, you know, we just take the next in line to really thinking about how we prioritize patients and also how we recognize, if you will, family. And and now I'm not thinking about family from the point of view of parents and 
kids, I'm thinking about who's in our clinical family mm. and how do we, you know, recognize the fact that that we need to have these these very close working relationships with primary care sites, with community organizations, uh, and that we can actually best serve families if we can do these kind of intimate handoffs among ourselves, that, that that's, that's the highest quality level of care rather than having a sort of disjointed system that families have to navigate themselves. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines, make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com slash COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. I couldn't agree more with that, but you're kind of making me think about what I hear as the biggest barrier when it comes to behavioral health, period, which is that we just don't have enough behavioral health professionals to come even close to matching demand. Frankly, we didn't have enough to match demand before the pandemic. And now, as, as you've said, the problem is a lot worse. So how has your organization really addressed that bottleneck? I mean, part of it is improving the training for our primary care professionals. So we really can be part of the answer, and we're not the whole answer, but we we receive very little training in residency, especially those who are, in, in my boat, more than 10 years out of training. We received almost zero training in behavioral mental health, and it was kind of taboo in some ways and scary for us, and we just wanted to refer it to the expert or to somebody else. Mm. But Larry has taught me it's not that hard and it's not that scary. And actually with um, a couple of hours of training, um, we really can enhance our skill to be really effective. What about the non-physician clinicians? What role do they play in kind of helping expand some capacity? I think they play a tremendous role. And I would say personally, in my practice, we have a position called a health navigator who's um, no clinical, she has no clinical training at all, high school education, uh, excellent people skills, and grew up in the community where my, my clinic is located, speaks more than one language. And she has just been an instrumental um, member of our team in helping patients and families to feel comfortable um, in receiving care from us and helping to coordinate care. So I think there is great potential and it's well, there's nice evidence actually um, for these peer support models or community health worker models that we really can um, use a lot of, you know, lay people for lack of a better word to help support um, behavioral mental health in the primary care setting and out in the community as well. So in general, we've got to we've got to just expand the bench. We've got to expand the bench of people and increase our team to be able to tackle this problem. That can be non-clinical. It can be among primary care physicians, other clinicians that are part of the team. But part of my head is going to if we need to expand the bench, that also might mean kind of protecting the, I'm going to guess, extremely burned out group of behavioral health clinicians 
that we have, right? If I think about the impact of this pandemic, there has been a ton of extra stress on an already stressed part of the workforce. Larry, you're a behavioral health clinician yourself. Do you have concerns about people on your team, you know, leaving the industry due to burnout, moving to a disruptor, you know, putting their hands up and saying, I can't do this? The burnout comes when somebody says, I have, you know, a 30-minute or a 50-minute session. I really want to do my evidence-based mental health intervention. And I have to spend half of that time trying to help people figure out where they're going to get their next meal from or figure out um, how they're going to advocate for their kid to get the services they need in school, which is at least a huge part of this child's you know, problems. Going back to what, what Cheryl is saying, most of the mental health people that I know love their work and they actually love challenging work. That's kind of why they went into this. Hmm. But they really want to work as part of a team. They need the resources. They need that navigator. They need that person who can work alongside them, who knows the community resources and can plug families into these other things. Yeah. They realize that the biopsychosocial model is real, but they're not being given the tools to put it into play. So Ginger, then from an administrative perspective, you know, what's the best thing that administrators can do to give clinicians the tools they need and to give them kind of the space they need to be able to provide that excellent care? Yeah, one thing about the model, and Cheryl and Larry can speak to this as well, is that it's not a traditional, we identify a child with a behavioral or mental health condition and you immediately refer them off to a therapist whose panel gets full right away. Yeah, It's like the same old care. So one of the beauties of this model is that, as Cheryl was saying, it's training um, more staff upstream to identify and address maybe low acuity issues. So then we save the professionals for the more acute cases. Hmm. And I'm not sure that we've talked much about actually the model that we're implementing. Maybe that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. I mean, one, um, we really are trying to get upstream and implement universal screening for one. So, you know, in the past, if you... Um, we were a little nervous or scared to ask some of these questions. So what if I ask somebody if they're having thoughts about suicide and then they're going to say yes, and I have no nobody or no skill to help them. And so I just am not going to ask. Um, so, you know, so now we, you know, we have a behavioral health professional on the team. So one, we're comfortable asking these questions. Two, we're creating standard processes, pathways of what you do when kids say yes to these different questions and really linking them with services and doing wherever possible, brief interventions. So a couple sessions with a patient and family when we identify a symptom that doesn't rise to the level of a diagnosable condition that we can train behavioral health professionals to do in primary care. But it's not the traditional, I'm going to go to the therapist and I'm going to see the therapist maybe for forever, (laughs) for years and years for, you know, ongoing therapy. We really are trying to uh, identify conditions early, symptoms early, intervene early so that we really can get upstream of this. And then we do have pediatric psychiatrists that are available as consultants to help us for those cases where we need it and also to provide oversight so that ideally we know all of the patients that we're taking care of with behavioral mental health conditions. We're very systematic in talking about that pa- that patient list 
how's Ginger doing? Is she getting better? Is she getting worse? Do we need to change what we're doing, change tactics? So it's a very different approach for us versus the just screen and refer and just hope that the kid got connected to care. And then two years later, they come back to me for the same problem. And I say, hey, how, how's it going with the therapist? And they're like, therapist, I don't, I don't see a therapist. Or that therapist was booked for six months. I couldn't get in. Right. And, you know, and so it's a very, very different approach that we're actually screening these patients, using registries to keep track of these patients, ensuring that they're getting connected to the appropriate care and really monitoring them. And if things aren't going well, changing course. What else really makes the Seattle Children's model different from the kind of status quo behavioral health model? Well, one thing is we, you know, layer on the social determinants of health and try to have a navigator. Mm. And the the part that will ultimately be the hardest, you know, nut to crack for us is also the how are we going to pull in the help for parents as well. Yeah. But one of the ways we are doing that already is also by saying that this isn't just about what goes on in the clinical visit. This is making the whole practice be a healing place. And a lot of this comes out of the trauma literature, but the whole idea is that from the minute you, you know, pick up the phone or whatever you do to get in touch with the practice, you feel you feel wanted, you feel understood, and you feel confident that this is a place where you're going to get help. And and that's another big big piece of the work that, uh, you know, Cheryl and Ginger are, are doing within, within the network. Well, and I would just add on real briefly to that, Ray, too, that um, Larry and colleagues had encouraged us to have family advocates as members of our integrated behavioral mental health teams at every practice. So there is at least one parent who's actually on our behavioral health team as well, helping us to make decisions mm. about, um, you know, what types of interventions do you need? Where are you struggling? What kind of help? And that has just been um, instrumental and I really, I'll have to say, revolutionary in how we're approaching things to, uh, I don't know why we didn't think to do it before, but to have the parents there at the table telling us what they need. Yeah. And that's really important and I think different from the adult versus pediatric world because the child might be the patient but they're not necessarily the consumer of care. They're certainly not the decision maker of care. Uh, and, and, and Larry, you mentioned that some of these problems are going to manifest not just in the child, but in the home, right, in the family. So how do you actually kind of take a multi-generational approach to these kinds of behavioral health challenges, especially as a children's institution? I think the big thing that you do is you listen to parents and you partner with them and you, in your interactions, ad address their needs. We know that people have brought their child, but the child lives in the family, and 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 we're, yeah. we've got to connect with and empathize with the parent right from the get go. But practically, how do you how do you do that? Because I'm thinking Seattle Children's, to my knowledge, doesn't provide adult care. So if a even red flag happens, I mean, what's the next step? You know, fortunately. CMMS has, you know, made it fairly clear that there's wiggle room in the billing and how we define mm -hmm, visits mm -hmm. to say that things that we do for parents on behalf of 
their child's ultimate benefit are are fair game. So we encourage people to to spend time with parents and to listen to their concerns. It's true we can't directly provide psychotherapy for them, but the fact of the matter is we are. One of the things that we are exploring though is how we can coach parents to use self-help tools that are available online yeah. and that we know are effective uh, and we all know are more effective if you're coached in using them. Yeah. And, and you just brought up kind of some of the digital self-help tools, which is something that I've seen grow dramatically across the course of this pandemic, in part because the demand for behavioral and mental health has been so high. And I'm talking about everyone here, not just kids, but but certainly of adults. And that's something that I hear a lot of people saying, this technology is going to be the solution to that bottleneck problem we talked about earlier. Yes, we need to expand training. Yes, we need to make the most out of the bench that we have and protect the bench that we have. But technology is really our, our way to boost efficiency. Has any of that happened at Seattle Children's when it comes to treating kids? Certainly the COVID, you know, made us move to almost, we're, we're still at almost 100%, you know, virtual visits at this point, which is clearly not benefiting some people who really do need in-person care. And, and, and so some stuff is going on in person. But 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 the ability to see people regularly from a distance to bring different family members together who aren't in the same place, ah. that part has been effective and an advance. I think the issue with the digital stuff is that there's there's really strong evidence that it has some baseline level of effectiveness, but its effectiveness goes up you know, linearly, at least linearly, maybe more so with the amount of time that you spend coaching people on how to, and supporting them and how to use it. it mm. It's a tool. It's homework. It's something that allows you to have a very efficient interaction with somebody uh, that then allows them to access material in, in a way that's that's easy for them. But uh, it's it's not a complete substitute for the human interaction that that seems to be important to healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we've been kind of talking throughout this conversation about this this behavioral health challenge as being something that is really in the forefront, something that got much worse throughout this pandemic. But I have to believe that that maybe living through this crisis has actually helped us make some progress towards our behavioral health goals. Is there anything that COVID-19 has kind of helped us with in terms of making progress here? Yeah, you know, I think it really has worked to elevate this in that everybody knows now. So even like our governor in the past couple of weeks declared a mental health state of emergency hmm. for our pediatric population in the state. That has never happened before. And it's been an emergency for a very long time. More teens die from suicide in our state than any other combination of wow. conditions. That wasn't enough right for this to be a crisis, but it is now. So I think it has done that for us. So we're at the, it's at the forefront and then money has followed behind that. Mm. And, and, you know, and the other thing, I think it is, it's made it okay to talk about it for yeah. many people. Reduce the stigma. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, everybody's talking about it. You I mean, you can't turn on the news on any given day. There's somebody talking about the impact to our behavioral mental health because of COVID. And that's never been the case where we've really talked that openly 
um, at that level before. Well, I've got two questions left before we wrap up this interview. And and before I ask you to give some advice to the healthcare leaders who are listening to this podcast, I actually want to give, especially the, the, the physicians on the line, uh, a moment to actually give some advice to parents, right? This has got to be a very scary moment for moms and dads out there who you know, don't know how to help their kids who are really suffering. Larry, what advice do you have for parents? Well, it may seem trite, but I think the advice that comes out of, you know, every disaster, since people have sort of thought about this, it can be probably summed up, at least for people who have now flown within recent memory as put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. You know, we know that kids do best when the grown-ups around them uh, can make sense of what's going on and can give them a sense of security and a sense that uh, things are going to be okay, or at least we're all in this together. So I think, I think the first thing is, is, is for parents to do what they can do to try to be as good as they can be themselves and to have the kinds of routines and uh, safe home base that, that they've always had, uh, you know, reestablished as quickly as they can. I've got one more if you want. Go for it. Which, which is which is again in some ways, you know, age old advice and comes a little bit from the, you know, great child uh analyst uh, Winnicott, but it it which is just the whole idea that um you know, this is this is a time for just being good enough that to really say to your kids, especially around school and education that this is going to be a year that everybody's going to write off. Uh, and what seems urgent now in the course of a long life uh, is is going to yeah it's going to be a blip and and we don't even know as you say what good things will will come out of it so you know take a deep breath don't sweat the small stuff the the fact that you're that you're here you're in the game that that's quite good enough right now yeah. well. Cheryl, Ginger, Larry, I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. I've got one question to leave you all with. It's the question I ask at the end of every episode. When it comes to pediatric behavioral health, what's the one thing that you want our listeners to take away or act on? Ginger, let's start with you. Yeah, I guess mine would just be encouragement to get creative to solve the problem and ask other people in the community to come together to do this with you, whether it's your health plan, your MCO, people who are paying for this and seeing the trends along with you. Just encouragement to come to the table and try to figure this out. Uh, as a society, we'll reap benefits. For health systems and providers, we will, and definitely for kids. Yeah. Cheryl, how about you? Yeah, you know, I think what I would love to see is that we invest in kids and families, that um, we're not an afterthought, that we really, um, we have such a unique opportunity in pediatrics, which is why I love being a pediatrician, to change the course of life, um, you know, the trajectory for our patients and families. It just is incredible. So invest in primary prevention programs in your communities um, and I agree with uh, completely with Ginger partnering with people in the community to make that happen. I think we just have such um, a unique ability in pediatrics to really change the course or the path for our patients and families that you don't have with adult populations. Yeah. Larry, what about you? 
Well, if I'm talking to healthcare leaders, I would say that whether you do it in collaboration with others, as Ginger has said, or you do it yourself, the, the operative thing here is that doing more is actually better than doing less. In other words, trying to just sort of hold up one tiny little piece of the system is going to lead you to some of the things that Cheryl and Ginger were talking about, just people getting overwhelmed, people getting frustrated, that the more you're, you're part of a continuum of care, whether you're providing that yourself or you're doing it you know, in partnership, and the more that it's really holistic mental health care, the, the better it's going to go, the happier your workforce is going to be, and the better you're going to serve people. I could not agree more. Thanks all for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Ray. We'll be right back with more from our behavioral health expert, Claire Worth. Claire, what did you think of our conversation with Seattle Children's? Well, I really enjoyed hearing all the different perspectives, particularly Larry, given his long professional career in the behavioral health space and how it's evolved today. Yeah. What was the most important thing that you learned about Seattle Children's model that you want other people to adopt as well? I think what struck me in particular is that they haven't just thought of this in terms of integrating behavioral health. They've thought of this from a very holistic perspective. Mm -hmm. So they are thinking about embedding the patient navigator. They are including someone akin to a community health worker in terms of that model who knows the community, can build that trust, and help with the psychosocial needs that go beyond just the behavioral health diagnoses. Yeah. I was so impressed by that too. And it sounds like they've really built the infrastructure to make that happen, right? Ginger and Cheryl were very specific about training and who the different people on the team are and taking a team-based approach in general to it. It's like they didn't just set their goalposts at holistic care. They, they really figured out a way to operationalize it. On that note of training, our health plan colleagues just did a survey of primary care physicians, and they asked that question, if we provide more screening, do you feel more comfortable with hmm. addressing behavioral health needs? And there's a direct correlation from our data. The more training you receive, the more comfortable you are. So that bears out in our data too. Oh, wow. Interesting. Was there anything that you were really surprised by that they either talked about or maybe maybe didn't talk about when it comes to their strategy? So maybe this is me just reading headlines, but I am curious about the amount of screen time these kids are getting. Mm. And so the solution is oftentimes we have to provide telemental health services, right? but that's just more screen time. These kids are in school eight to nine hours a day, oftentimes virtually. And they're probably interacting with friends virtually. They're playing games virtually. And then if they're also receiving essential healthcare services virtually, what does that mean? I mean, I also appreciated Larry's kind of realistic, like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, especially this year. Like, it, it's probably all going to be okay. So maybe that's the case, too, for screen time. I mean, I would like to believe that kids don't want to be going to virtual school forever or having virtual playdates forever. So maybe this is one of those things that will all work itself out in the end. 
And I think that theme of something is better than nothing was resonant throughout the conversation, right? Like we need to be screening as early as possible, providing even just a brief intervention, even if they don't have an actual diagnosis is better than nothing and letting this ruminate over time and suddenly there's a crisis. I am cognizant of the fact that we we spoke to a children's hospital and, and an integrated health network that focuses on kids, that focuses on pediatrics. Based on what you heard, is there anything that you would absolutely recommend that any provider adopt beyond just in the pediatric space? I think that their sentiment around becoming more of a system and thinking more cross-continuum when it comes to behavioral health is essential for any mm-hmm. organization right now. I think that Historically, in our research, we've had executives say, we have a lot of behavioral health patients in the ED. What do we do? And so it's a lot of times focused on um, embedding telepsychiatry in the emergency department or even a behavioral health professional or standing up a clinic dedicated to that. But we're not getting earlier upstream, as well as integrating it into different specialties and screening folks there. So I was really impressed to hear that they were thinking of that cross-continuum approach and hope that they keep focusing on the systemness perspective. And that's our best way to prevent the problem from getting worse. Absolutely. And not just keep addressing the problem when it, you know, literally knocks on our door. I don't want to pretend that we or even Seattle Children's has all the answers here. So for you as a researcher, what in your mind are the big unanswered questions when it comes to behavioral health? Oh gosh, there are, there are just so many. I think that my my big questions right now is where do we go from here? Right. So what does patient demand look like in the near term and the long term? So in the near term, we have how are these behavioral health needs going to manifest? And it's why employers are more interested in behavioral health than they ever have before. And then long term, we know young people are reporting the highest rates of behavioral health needs amid COVID. Yeah. So what does that do as our demographics shift longer term? So just from a patient demand perspective, I'm really curious. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The other one that's interesting to me is is the stigma piece. And you started to get at that in the conversation. In some ways, we've become more aware of behavioral health than we ever have before. It has breached the national consciousness in a real way. And my hope is that it instigates more change at the legislative level. But of course, we've had very slow progress when it comes to behavioral health for our entire history of our country. Yeah, but that is that it has been a huge silver lining that, that I've seen. I mean, Claire, we have conversations at work about this. And I cannot remember ever doing that before. I wonder if there are any red flags that you want other organizations to avoid. So something that Cheryl said is a comment I've heard from a lot of organizations of let's screen, refer, and then hope that that patient receives that type of care. And I think that's resonant of the hot potato that is behavioral health care in the United States so often. It is, oh, we figured this out. We got to pass it to somebody else. Maybe a community-based organization can handle it. Patient ends up into the ED. It just kind of becomes this hot potato effect. And so if there's one lesson or push I would uh, really stress for executives right now came from a conversation I had earlier this week with somebody who's focused on behavioral health. And, And her point was, we have to transition from hot potato behavioral health to fully integrated care across the care continuum. Mm. Is is that the one thing you want our listeners to to take away from this conversation? 
Absolutely. It is about thinking about filling gaps across the care continuum. Behavioral health cannot be siloed any longer. These needs are so prevalent. And so it's about standing up those services across the care continuum and building links across it to match patients' needs as they move up and down the continuum themselves. Well, thanks for coming back on Radio Advisory. Thanks for having me, Ray. At the beginning of the pandemic, Claire came on to talk about the behavioral health care crisis among adults. And a year into this pandemic, there is no way to sugarcoat the fact that the challenges are great and in many ways getting worse. But there's also reasons for some cautious optimism. And organizations like Seattle Children's are at the forefront of what gives us hope. If you're looking for more on this, we've added some resources to our show notes. Because as always, remember, we are here to help. I will admit the days that I need to feel important, I dress to feel important. Do you put on do you put on fancy pants though? Rarely. I have I I shrink wrapped my fancy pants. My fancy pants are not just put away. They are in like one of those those bags that you have to um, vacuum seal. <laughs> I'm never going back to the office, you guys. I can't explain this. I'm never going back. <laughs> <laughs>